I'm Shahar Azani, and in the news, the situation on Israel's northern border, special from the border. Every once in a while, news come out of Syria of yet another supposed Israeli attack against military bases and installations and other strategic locations in the war-torn state. It's been years now that Israel has been executing a concerted effort to eradicate the Iranian military buildup in Syria through strikes. The fight between Israel and Iran has also been taking place at sea and through cyber warfare, among other sites. Iran continues to be a destabilizing regional force whose tentacles reach far beyond its borders to Yemen, Gaza, and even South America. All this is taking place while negotiations are underway between the US and Iran on the future or present of its nuclear program. What does the future hold? And what does the situation look like on Israel's northern border today? Joining us on this wonderful special on JBS all the way from the Syrian-Israeli northern border is Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Sarit Zahavi, our good friend, founder and CEO of the Alma Research and Education Center. Sarit is an IDF intelligence veteran and a security expert. She lives with her husband and five children in the village of Kfar Vradim, located in the Western Galilee region of Northern Israel. Sarit, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, how are you? How are things in Israel? Well, a lot of COVID, but uh, it's a beautiful day, a little bit cold. <laughs> well, you're- you're out in the open, as we can see, um, enjoying the weather and luckily without a mask. Maybe share with us exactly where are you at the moment? Actually, I'm standing at the border, a few inches from the fence uh, of the Israeli-Syrian border. Uh, it's an excellent timing because we have planned to come here today and film and then you ask to talk to me. So there we are. Amazing. Um, Tell us a little bit about the current situation. I know that you at ALMA conduct continuous um, research and you follow the situation in Lebanon, Syria, with what's happening in Iran. You recently came out with a striking report about Iranian activity in the UAV sphere. Maybe tell us a little bit about what UAVs are and what exactly you came up with. Okay, so UAV can be in various sizes to, by the way, various missions. They're starting with uh, intelligence gathering. Uh, just, or, just for our uh, viewers who don't, who don't know what UAV is, it's an unmanned aerial vehicle, right? A drone, really. Kind of a drone. Uh, but again, it can be in different sizes. In our report, uh, we mentioned around uh, almost 50 different types of uh, drones, of UAVs, uh, in the hands of the Iranians or in the hands of the Iranians' proxies in the region, whether it's uh, Yemenis, Syrians, uh, Lebanese, or others. Uh, these UAVs can be used for uh, intelligence gathering or for trans uh, transferring ammunition or even for attack either by uh, what they call kamikaze uh, UAVs or uh, even some of them can carry out missiles and launch these missiles against targets. So UAV really presents a serious threat. It's not a game. No, definitely not. And what we see in the past few years is that the Iranians invested a lot of time and money in developing these UAVs. Uh, the Iranians started the project of UAVs back in the 80s. 
with the Iraq and Iran war. Uh, so they uh, had the basic to develop the knowledge of uh, self-manufacturing of UAVs. And this is how they become uh, such a great power in this respect. Just to give you a small example, last week, the Saudis uh, published how many UAVs attacked Saudi Arabia by the Houthis in Yemen uh, since 2015. And they mentioned it was more than 800 UAVs that attacked Saudi Arabia from Yemen since 2015. So you, you can understand that this uh, array is quite important for the Iranians and they also equipped their proxies in the region, including those who are just across the fence here uh, in this kind of ammunition. And what does it mean when you say attack? Um, what, what do they do with the UAVs? What is, can you describe such an attack to us? So as I've said, there is a capability of the UAVs to launch missiles, but actually most of the attacks that were carried out until today were uh, kamikaze UAVs that actually crashed on the target. It happened uh, many times, uh, sometimes uh, against the US embassy in Iraq, for example, against uh, uh, ships and uh, Navy ships, IDF, uh, not, uh, not IDF, uh, civilian Navy ships in the region. I'm sorry for the noise there some cars here around us. Uh, this is are. an open area. Right. Uh, <laughs> That's quite all right. That's quite, they just take care, be, be safe. Uh, so yes, they use the kamikaze UAVs uh, for various targets. By the way, for various missions that the Iranians identify, either for attacking their own enemies in the region, as I've mentioned, Saudi Arabia, uh, sometimes against the Americans, as they did uh, two months ago in the American base in Tanaf which is on the border between Syria and Iraq, and sometimes also to uh, create involvement in other countries in the Middle East, in the region, as they try to assassinate uh, the Iraqi prime minister again a few months ago. And from what you're able to analyze, how successful have they been um, using that UAV army? And has there been any significant response from opposing forces when it comes to countering this threat? Unfortunately, I don't think that the response was uh, bold enough uh, in, the, in the cases that I've just mentioned, in the examples that I've just mentioned. And there are many more examples uh, also against uh, Israeli-owned uh, ships in the Arab Gulf. But I can say that uh, the attacks were usually, usually not all of them, not lethal, it, it, these were small UAVs that crashed on the targets. For example, they didn't succeed in killing the Iraqi prime minister. When we speak about Saudi Arabia, they did cause damage. They did kill a few tens of Saudi citizens in those seven years they are being used against the Saudis. Uh, so it really depends on the which kind of UAV they use for what mission uh, and in which opportunity and how many were used at the same time. You know, you're talking to us about the uh, UAV army that Iran has been developing and, it, and, and its work in Yemen. And we are reminded by the fact that Iran is a destabilizing force across the region and beyond. And it goes far beyond the nuclear issue. It's on the uh, what we call the day-to-day -day terror, isn't it, Sarit? Exactly. And this is what we see also with regard to the threat against Israel, because our understanding in the Alma Center is that Hezbollah already has around 2,000 uh, UAVs as well. From Again, from various kinds, those who can uh, attack us uh, with very accurate uh, capabilities in attacking targets for uh, 
uh, long distances, kind of complementary to the missiles array that Hezbollah built in Lebanon. You um, at the at the Alma Center, you're following the situation up north. We've seen, um, ag again, according to foreign sources, a lot of Israeli attacks in Syria on various strategic locations, and even uh, some sort of an intensification of these attacks in the last few months. How do you see the situation from your end? I can't say that there is intensification uh, with regard to Israel uh, by itself. You know. In the past two years, it's different. In the past two years, or maybe even three years, uh, the border, the northern border, is a little bit more busy. But uh, and yet, it's not uh, a border of war. Okay, it's not like it is in Gaza. And yet, I feel uh, usually safe uh, to go on the border and uh, you know even to visit there with my children. When I don't feel safe, I don't go, of course. But uh, I, I do see intensification in the past few months when we speak about the clashes between Iranians and Americans. And here I see, and there were a few attacks, including last week, using UAVs by the Iranians against American presence in the region. And, and what has been the US response to these attacks? I don't think there was. And at the end of the day, um, how do you see the Iranian interpretation to this lack of response by the US and other forces? Well, first I must say that you should put this in a wider context. It's not, it's not only a response toward a specific attack. It's much, much more than that. Uh, and of course, yes, uh, I also wrote about it now. Uh, the interpretation of uh, the Iranians to the US policy, uh, by the way, again, not, not only recently, when we speak of the past decade, uh, of withdrawing from the Middle East uh, is, is an interpretation of weakness. And I believe that uh, there is a great meaning to send a message of strength and power to the Iranians. And this could be done by various means. One of them is responses to, uh, to UAVs attacks, but there could be uh, also some other responses and some other actions that uh, the Americans can initiate to send a very clear message, don't mess me with us and don't mess with our allies in the region. You know, um, we just uh, um, commemorated the anniversary of Qasem Soleimani's assassination by the Trump administration. From your perspective as an intelligence analyst, how impactful was that assassination to the Iranian buildup in the Middle East and in the region? I think it's very important because this is exactly the right way to send the messages I was talking about. Eventually, when you assassinate, assassinate this kind of figure, it may have two meanings. The one is operational. And I think the Iranians succeeded in uh, nominating somebody else that can coordinate between the different militias, though is not as uh, charismatic as Suleimani. Uh, and the other one is psychological. And when we speak on psychological, definitely the message was sent, but this was one incident. And we definitely need um, more like that, uh, that will create the right message. So actually just two days ago, there was a UAV attack by the Iranians against an, uh, an American uh, base in Baghdad with a small drone, while the Iranians made it very clear, or their proxies, I don't know, made it very clear that this is a response to Suleimani. It was at the same day, the annual day 
uh, for Suleimani's assassination. And it was written on the, on the flags of the drone that this is actually a revenge for Suleimani's death. By the way, the whole issue of the annual day, two years for Suleimani's association was quite a festival in our region. We have seen ceremonies that were held everywhere from Damascus to Baghdad, uh, to Lebanon, even in Gaza, uh, to commemorate Suleimani using uh, posters, using like Israeli and, and uh, American flags on the road in Baghdad where the cars can actually go over. Uh, we have seen, by the way, sometimes even protests against these festivals, like in Beirut, like in Gaza, because not everybody likes this Iranian involvement in the region. So this festival again uh, around Suleimani's assassination was quite uh, an experience for us as researchers to understand who is with, who is against, uh, and how the Iranian presence in the region is actually being viewed uh, by the different players here in the in the area. So, so this is all happening, Sarit. All the while, there are negotiations between the U.S. and Iran. So, Iran has no problem while negotiating with the U.S. to continuously attack its personnel. I think it uh, goes hand in hand. Of course, on the one hand, you create negotiations, and on the other hand, you deliver a message of threat. Uh, to create, uh, I don't know, I, I can't say fear, but to create confusion. And that way, maybe put a little bit more pressure on the diplomats that are negotiating in Vienna. Um, you know, Sarit, one of the things I like very much about the uh, Alma Education and Research Center is the fact that you not only are you in the north of Israel really following up on the situation there, but you also have the opportunity, you know, it's a very confusing and complex reality in the north of Israel when, where decisions have to be made and if God forbids things escalate. Um, you actually have a simulation system that during regular times when people can actually enter Israel uh, past uh, or, or hopefully very quickly after COVID, people have the opportunity to engage with decision-making vis-a-vis situation in the North. Tell us a little bit about that aspect of your work. So, yes, my understanding when I established Alma Center is that I do want to deal with education, but not only just speaking. It's important to create the experience. So part of the experience is standing here on the border, and another part is actually trying to become Israelis, how we feel, what do we experience, how do we make decisions in a situation of crisis on the northern border. What we have created is an educational program that after the group visited the border, visited the fence, it comes to Alma Center. And the moment they walk at the door, they become the Israeli government. And now they have to make the decisions that we make here every day or during wartime. By the way, Shachar, since COVID, we made all our educational program uh, digitally available, including the simulation. So you don't need to come to Israel to experience the simulation, all you have to do is to arrange a few friends and you, we can do it by Zoom. Oh, wow. That can be done from afar. That's amazing news, Sarit. Yes. <laughs> you know, talk about complex situations in the North. We have, of course, Iran and Syria, but very much like you mentioned, we have Lebanon, Hezbollah and Iran. What's happening in Lebanon at the moment? We've heard, you know, since the grand explosion last year to deteriorating economy. Can you describe the current situation in Lebanon at the moment? Look, we always ask ourselves, when will be the day that we will wake up 
and we'll see that Lebanon completely collapsed because uh, the situation is really a catastrophe. There is not enough fuel uh, to warm the houses. Uh, there is not, not enough, there, there is lack of uh, ingredients, of basic ingredients. There is lack of medications. It is really difficult to cope with COVID at the same time. And of course, Hezbollah is taking advantage to all of that to, on the one hand, to provide the population, especially the Shiite population, which is its base, uh, with some of the products that are missing, not everything, but also at the same time to smuggle a little bit, for example, from the fuel into its military purposes uh, and needs. Uh, that way, Hezbollah also uh, gained more and more power in the systems of the Lebanese state because there is no state. It's a failed state, actually. And uh, Hezbollah, which is a member of the, the dysfunctioning government, uh, uh, gaining more and more power in this dysfunctioning state and actually providing services that the government itself cannot provide. And that way buying uh, more support of its base or preserving the support of its Shiite base. On the other hand, there is growing criticism against Hezbollah in Lebanon by those who are against it. The problem is that many of them gave up uh, desperate and are leaving Lebanon. And we see this every day. We've seen this with hundreds of nurses and doctors that left Lebanon and found positions elsewhere in the West. Uh, on top of all of that, there are always disagreements. Disagreements upon uh, the investigation of the blast in Beirut, disagreements upon the government, disagreements upon the kind of uh, relationship with the Saudis, all the time, there are disagreements that are actually paralyzing the political system in Lebanon. When you're saying the, um, you mentioned the explosion in the port of Beirut, who are, who is uh, held to, to blame for the explosion by the Lebanese public? Well, again, it's really difficult for me to say the term Lebanese public because Lebanese public is diverse. It is composed of Sunni and Shiites and Christians and Druze and different interests and a corrupted leadership. But in general, I can say that those who are against Hezbollah would continue to say that probably, we don't have enough proofs, but probably Hezbollah had something to do with this blast. Probably there was something in this warehouse that caused uh, this huge blast. Uh, of course, those who are against Hezbollah are saying that the ammonia nitrate that uh, blew up in the, in the warehouse in, uh, in the seaport in Beirut was there for a reason and was there for military reason of Hezbollah. Those who are with Hezbollah are saying that uh, the judge that was nominated to investigate the blast is biased and he should be fired. And that's why actually the investigation is not going anywhere. And when you say every morning we wake up to see, is that the day when Lebanon collapses, what does that day look like in your view? Like what's gonna happen the day after the, the state collapses? First, I'm not sure we will, uh, we will see this day. Uh, it may take time and it may uh, continue to be a process. Then when you look backwards, you will understand, okay, it collapsed. But what, second, what, what I think that-, that uh, What does that collapse mean? Like what does it- Okay, so I think that the, the, the basic, uh, question in this is the Lebanese armed forces. Where are the Lebanese armed forces in this? Because the Lebanese armed forces are the only super glue that was left that can actually bring together what you call the Lebanese public or the Lebanese themselves. Uh, for now, uh, the Lebanese uh, armed forces is still functioning with a lot of difficulties. Uh, there are rumors of uh, even defections of uh, soldiers because there is not enough food 
and the salaries uh, don't worth anything anymore. But uh, it is still there. It is still functioning and it is still uh, uh, enjoy the uh, trust of the Lebanese public. If the Lebanese uh, armed forces will not function at all, uh, definitely we will see something different happening in Lebanon. Yet it does not mean that I believe that uh, we should blindly support these uh, armed forces, uh, the Lebanese armed forces, because it is collaborating with Hezbollah and we should bear this in mind. And in the course of these crises in Lebanon, has Hezbollah been weakened or strengthened? It depends who you ask, but of course I believe it was strengthened because Hezbollah knew how to take advantage of this crisis in Lebanon to gain uh, more power, as I've said, to provide the services that the government uh, failed to provide and that way gain more support. Of course, Hezbollah is also facing challenges like the rest of the Lebanese society, but Hezbollah continues to enjoy the support of the Iranians. And we see that it, it succeeded in paralyzing even the investigation about the blast. Uh, you know, Sarit, I have to ask you something that I'm sure is on the mind of many of our viewers. Um, you're up there in the north. It all seems quiet, serene, a bit coldish, I have to admit. How do you explain the relative quiet in the north, especially when you see, you know, the cyber warfare on the side of Iran, the attacks on the uh, on the ships, what's happening in Syria continuously, and yet up north in the Lebanese border, it has all to, you know, all in all, remained relatively quiet. How do you see that happening? So yes, Lebanese and Syrian border. In many cases, when I come to the border, I immediately see uh, either shepherds coming uh, close to the fence like where I'm standing now, or uh, Hezbollah operatives uh, on the Lebanese border coming and take, taking pictures of me. And people are asking me, okay, aren't you afraid? Uh, what prevents them from opening fire uh, against you while you're standing at the border? And I'm not afraid because I know that the key word is deterrent. Of course, they are capable. They can open fire, uh, snipers, whatever but uh, they are deterred. And as long as Hezbollah is deterred, by the way, not only thanks to the Israeli policy, but also because of what is actually happening inside Lebanon, uh, as long as Hezbollah is not interested in deteriorating into an all out war, I don't think it will try to um, attack Israeli civilians on the Lebanese Syrian border. As for soldiers, this is a different business. And I think that here, IDF learned how to be very cautious and create a situation, daily situation assessment, uh, whether Hezbollah is intending to do anything today or tomorrow. A few months ago, there was actually uh, an attack from uh, Lebanon into Israel of, I believe, uh, rockets that landed um, in the north. More than one. And <laughs> how, you know, what's, what's, What's the reason that that happened? And again, it did not escalate beyond that, uh, that attack. First, nobody got killed and nobody was wounded. Uh, we are talking on few attacks, uh, starting from the Guardian of the Wall, during the Guardian of the Wall, and afterwards, a uh, few attacks that were made by Hamas in Lebanon, that is also building its power uh, inside Lebanon. We published a full report on that as well. And then came like the biggest one, which was held by Hezbollah itself, uh, with 20 rockets that were launched at the same time towards uh, uh, an area that the Lebanese call Shaba Farms, we called 
Hardov, uh, which is actually a closed uh, military zone uh, of the IDF, uh, targeting, again, targeting soldiers. Again, nobody got hurt. Uh, Iron Dome intercepted half of the rockets. Around nine rockets were intercepted by uh, uh, Iron Dome. Some landed in open areas, even in Lebanon, and some landed in open areas in Israel. Uh, sometimes, let's say we were lucky, uh, we were very lucky, and uh, causing uh, damage like burning, um, and I'm saying ver very sadly because I saw the damage, uh, nature reserve uh, in the Galilee. Uh, what caused to this attack? Uh, you will be surprised by my answer. Actually, Hezbollah first and foremost wanted to send the message uh, inside to the Lebanese. Because after a few incidents that Hamas launched rockets to Israel and actually endangered Hezbollah with uh, deteriorating the situation with Israel, Hezbollah wanted to send a message to Hamas in Lebanon and to the Lebanese themselves. I'm the boss in South Lebanon. I'm the one who is fighting Israel and nobody else. And that's why he did that. They failed not only because the rockets didn't cause any casualties, but also because the launcher and the Hezbollah operatives that uh, launched the rockets were caught by the Druze in the town uh, right after the launching. And the, the photos and the videos of the Hezbollah, the frightened Hezbollah operatives in the vehicle were published all over Lebanon, actually not sending a message of strength, but a message of weakness. We, we definitely remember those encouraging images. And, you know, every day that goes by, I think the hope is similar when it comes to Lebanon or the regime in Tehran, that hopefully will wake up tomorrow to a new, more peaceful and more stable Middle East. Sarit, thank you so much for joining us, for your insights and for the great work you and the researchers at the Alma Center do every day to uh, uh, explain the complexities of the region, make it accessible to all and truly make us all understand a little more about the world we live in. Thank you very much, Shaha. Um, I'd like to say to all of our viewers, what a great opportunity to join Sarit in the north of Israel and we look forward to many more in the future. In the meantime, Thank you very much for watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. I'd like to thank our director, Sloan Copeland, JBS's managing director, Dara Golob, our technical manager, Michael Paley, transmission manager, John McDevitt, and to our wonderful producer of In the News, Carol Lilienthal. For JBS, I'm Shahar Razani. Until next time, shalom and lehitraot.